we will look back on tonight as when this new chapter of American greatness began. The time for small thinking is over. The time for trivial fights is behind us. Yeah, you wish. Good luck with that, Mr. President. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. Certainly is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest in China Lake, California. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. 92.9 FM WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. WGRN 94.1 FM in Columbus, Ohio. 102.9 FM WLPP in Palinville, New York. W- WPRR in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe every damn day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. And yes, as you may have guessed, today it's our uh, special coverage of whatever the hell happened on uh, Tuesday night in a joint session of Congress when President Trump largely managed to stick to the teleprompter. In his address to that uh, joint session of Congress, his first such address, which is not officially a State of the Union because presidents don't give one of those until after their first year in office, I guess. But it had all the trappings of a State of the Union. The speech, as per Trump's habit, was long on nationalistic rhetoric and exaggerations, if short on actual policy details. But it seems the bar is now uh, so low for this president that not saying something ridiculously stupid seems to suffice for a great presidential moment in history. At least if you listen uh, to and, and read much of the corporate media coverage last night and today. Uh, It was a little bit different from recent State of the Union speeches from actually from all State of the Union speeches, actually, in that there were actually very few on the Democratic side of the aisle, literally on the Democratic side of the aisle, uh, trying to be seen and shake the president's hand as he entered the chamber. That's unusual. It was obviously a uh, purposeful snub by the Democrats who usually fight for those aisle seats, even for Republican presidential uh, addresses in Congress, at least until now. They stood, the Democrats did, when he entered the room, but they didn't much applaud. Uh, Most of the female Democratic Congress members were wearing suffragette white, a nod to voting rights and civil rights and equal rights for women. 
Democrats spent most of the speech sitting quietly and respectfully with neither applause nor bursts of, you lie! Uh, they filed very quickly out of the chamber, however. Pretty much as soon as uh, Trump completed uh, the address, the Democrats were out of there. Republicans, on the other hand, offered a quite warm reception to uh, Trump throughout the entire night. They seemed quite happy, in fact. Uh, as did those who watched the speech. 78% of those who watched it, according to CNN, ORC, and their Snap poll uh, of viewers, 78% uh, reacted positively to the address by the otherwise wildly unpopular president. 57% of those people had a very positive reaction, according to the poll. Two-thirds of those viewers said the president had the right priorities for the country. Two-thirds and seven in ten said the speech made them more opti optimistic about the direction of the country. Now, that said, those numbers only reflect those who had said in advance that they plan to watch the speech. So it's not actually a measure of all Americans. People who chose to watch... Uh, or choose to watch a political speech such as this one, notes CNN, tend to be more supportive of the speaker. And in this case, the pool of speech watchers was about eight points more Republican than the population as a whole. Those speech watchers gave Trump high marks on many of his uh, policy proposals. But it must also be noted here, as CNN uh, actually does, um, and, and I want to make this clear because Trump is likely to cite these numbers very soon as the best numbers ever in presidential history. Uh, seven, while 57 percent had a very positive reaction to the speech, those numbers actually fell below the reviews uh, that both the Barack Obama and George W. Bush received in their initial addresses to Congress um, by about uh, 10 points in each case. So. Uh, you know, Trump's 69 percent approval on his policies among speech watchers uh, that that beat George W. Bush's lowest mark ever by just two points uh, in his uh, last year of his disastrous presidency. So just a bit of perspective on those numbers. Uh, it, the speech uh, included a familiar laundry list of Trump Lies, exaggerations, cherry picked and misleading facts and statistics. For example, Washington Post points out uh, in their uh, detailed roundup of some 13 or more notable misleading and untruthful points that Trump claimed, for example, there were 94 million Americans out of the labor force. Terrible. 94 million. Um, as if those 94 million were seeking but unable to find work. In fact, it's a claim that the uh, paper has given a four Pinocchio rating in the past since just about seven and a half million Americans are actually looking for work. So 93 percent of the people that Trump cited actually don't want a job. They're people who are retired or students or stay at home parents or disabled, etc., um, but, you know, 94 million Americans are out of work if you uh, don't bother to uh, lift the uh, lift the sheets and see what's actually under some of Trump's claims here. So there was a lot of those sorts of easily demonstrated deceptions throughout his entire speech, at least from my viewing. Uh, nonetheless, reviews from uh, Wall Street apparently were great. The Dow soared over 300 points today, closing at an all time high over 21,000 points following the speech. 
As much of the corporate media were exceedingly generous to Donald Trump, I thought, describing the speech as presidential and the long-awaited Trump pivot front page of the uh, Daily News today in New York, uh, which has been no fan of Trump's, reads, uh, Don hits reset, takes brighter tone before Congress. Brian Williams on NBC, MSNBC called it uh, easily the most traditional speech Trump has given in public life, the most speech-like speech, if you will. Others were not quite as easily uh, distracted. Uh, Glenn Thrush at The New York Times said for any other president, it would be this would be a boring laundry list speech. But for Trump, amazing, responsible, detailed, uniting, presidential. Tim Dickinson of Rolling Stone described it as the soft bigotry of diminished expectations. Josh Greenman over at New York Daily News said the speech was better than when Trump blamed other people for a military operation gone bad and hinted that Jewish community center bomb threats might be false flags. And uh, Rebecca Traster mocked uh, over at New York Magazine, mocked the media, uh, said uh, by saying a Trump hits it out of the ballpark by reading accurately. And in the meantime, our friend Empty Wheel, uh, Marcy Wheeler, uh, said that uh, tweeted that that was a good speech. Democrats will underestimate it at their peril. Well, let's see how a few I don't know if they call themselves Democrats, but progressives in any event. Let's see how a few may or may not underestimate Trump's first address to Congress. And if we're lucky, some of the substance uh, or lack thereof within it. Joining us today to try and make whatever sense we can of it, of course, is our own Desi Doyen. Uh, she's with us as usual. Hi, Des. <laughs> yes, how are yes, you? Yes, I am. Barely with us as usual. Uh, I'm also happy to be joined by Gaius Publius. That's the pen name for the longtime blogger and professional writer who contributes to a number of publications, among them Digby's Hullabaloo, Down with Tyranny, Naked Capitalism, Truth Out, and Alternate. Gaius, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me. Does this mean that we will be quoting uh, an anonymous source, since you use a pen name, uh, by having you? And, and is that still legal under this new president, Gaius? Uh, well, I think I'm about to be uh, exported myself, so uh, you, you want to catch it while you can. Oh, good. Okay, we'll take what we can get. We're also joined today by our old friend Jackie Schechner, longtime journalist, former CNN and current TV reporter, uh, who went on to work as the National Communications Director for Health Care for America, now the nation's largest health care reform campaign during the Obama era. Uh, and she also worked for Al Gore's Climate Reality Project. Hey, welcome back to the broadcast, Jackie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being had. All right, uh, <laughs> let's let's start broad here as usual before we get into some of the specifics in the bit. But let's let's go broad here. Hey, Jackie, I, I remember for a few years after the shooting of uh, Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, uh, when when Democrats and Republicans actually sat together, they went out of their way to sit together. Uh, during State of the Union uh, speeches. Not so much anymore, it seems. The uh, Democrats were not playing last night, it seems. As well, they shouldn't. I mean, I, I'm astonished this morning how sensible people are coming out and saying that this is a pivot, that this is somehow a reset. I remember Trump, uh, everything else he's done before last night, and I didn't think the speech was anything spectacular either. I mean, I just, to me, it was a man reading off a teleprompter, uh, doing so without uh, the usual onslaught of flubs. But it's the same person. I mean, Donald Trump is still Trump. And so everything he's done up until giving a speech last night that 
clearly somebody else wrote and he was capable of reading doesn't make him a different person. And I think being at all the least bit forgiving of anything he's done up until that point is embarrassingly naive. Uh, well, speaking of embarrassingly naive, for all the uh, pretend pushback against uh, uh, Trump from Republicans over the past year or so, uh, and even in, in recent months, pretending that they oppose him or this or on this or that, uh, Gaius, they sure did give him a warm reception on Tuesday night, it seemed to me. Well, I think that, that Trump and the Republican Party have both been outed as each other, mm. and that's something that we haven't heard said very much but it's absolutely true what does that mean they've been outed as each other that the that really they're both the same they're not opposed at all as they've been pretending for so long well they're interlocking directorates to use a a corporate metaphor (laughs) uh trump has been uh during the during the primary uh, very successfully ran as i'm not the democratic i'm not the republican establishment just as sanders ran i'm not the democratic establishment and that brought to both of those candidates a surge of what would in, in 2008 would have been Obama voters, uh, people who were looking for change, major change in the system for any, any number and any variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there was a lot of uh, arc, um, anecdotal evidence mm-hmm. that in open primaries, people, people would come in and say, well, I'm a Trump voter, I'm a Sanders voter, which ballot do I want? Um, so Trump has a different kind of Republican. He's got different trade policies. He wants to increase jobs. He wants to change tax uh, structure. Uh, the Trump before the uh, election was a different kind of Republican. And the contrast was to the Paul Ryan Republicans, who were just slash and burn. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackie knows this is uh, better than anybody, what he wants to do to health care, what he wants to do to Social Security, and all of that. Well, it turns out that um, they have reached an accommodation where the soft, gooey, ugly center of the Trump agenda, I should say the regime agenda, the Trump-Bannon, to keep it domestic, Trump-Bannon-Pence agenda, Mm -hmm. really overlaps with the soft, gooey, ugly center of the Paul Ryan agenda. They just have to figure out how to get it past people who don't want either. Is, uh, they are each other, and, and they should be identified as each other. I, I think you make so a Brad, good point. Let me just jump in real yeah. quick. I would argue that he's not a Republican at all. I mean, I would argue he's an entertainer who likes adulation, and so he's going to go along with whatever he thinks is popular in the moment. I, d- I don't think Trump himself has much of an agenda. So I think the Republicans are hoping that they can contain him enough to push through their agenda. But I think Trump will go with, really, as they say, the last person he spoke with, um, and whatever he thinks is going to make him popular in the moment. But I don't wh- know that ideologically he's been a lifelong Republican. I don't think he's been much of anything. Well, n- no, he hasn't, but on a, a policy level, uh, he's certainly uh, singing the Republican song. So the question is, is the uh, is Trump becoming more like the old-school Republicans, or are the, uh, you know, are the Republicans in Congress now happily moving towards uh, Trump's position as you see it? Jackie's making a really good point, and I would, I'd like to just point out that that's a, a differentiating Trump the person from the Trump administration policy, mm-hmm. as, as you say, Brad. Um, and both are valid discussions, but Jackie's right about Trump the person. Uh, the nation is stuck with Trump the policy engine, and Trump the person's job will be to advance that policy engine so that he gets the most ego points he can get because I think that's what he plays for. 
All right, before we get to some of those uh, items in that policy engine, um, Trump opened with a single paragraph uh, last night about the recent and uh, unprecedented wave of bomb threats against Jewish community centers across the country. And and what I believe is his very first and only acknowledgement, to my knowledge, uh, so far of the triple shooting last week in Olathe, Kansas, by a man who allegedly shouted, get out of my country, before shooting two Indian men here on legal work visas, who the shooter thought was apparently uh, thought they were Iranian. Uh, and uh, wrapped into that same single paragraph was a recognition of the final day of, uh, of Black History Month. Recent threats targeting Jewish community centers and vandalism of Jewish cemeteries, as well as last week's shooting in Kansas City, remind us that while we may be a nation divided on policies, we are a country that stands united in condemning hate and evil in all of its very ugly forms. And that was sort of the one nod, uh, the one thing that he had to say about that before uh, moving on. Uh, Jackie Schechner, I noticed on the Twitters last night uh, during the speech, you flatly rejected that commentary. You did not accept those. uh, You you were not moved or impressed by that, uh, by those words. No, I mean, to me, actions speak louder than days and weeks late words. He's done and said absolutely nothing in the moment. It's been evidenced by his behavior and his campaign and his administration's behavior that this stuff doesn't mean anything to them. And I think that if you come out in a speech and you grant it some lip service uh, because you think it's the appropriate thing to do in the moment, even though you've never found it appropriate before, uh, it means very little, if anything, at all. I I, I found it to be embarrassingly uh, sycophantic, and I, I don't think that they've demonstrated anything beyond putting some sentences together and having Trump read them. And I, it's offensive. And it's offensive, frankly, to lump all of it in together with the end of Black History Month, because I don't think that he cares much about minorities either. Uh, Gaius Publius, uh, your thoughts too little, too late, or, uh, or just what needed to be done here before moving on? Um, but I'm looking at the optics. Uh, too little, too late, of course. But, but we all knew that, that Trump had this, that this meanness about him that uh, he, he constantly showed during the campaign, and we don't have any sign that he's lost it. What he's really done is given himself a paint job, and he's hoping, and he did that throughout the speech, by the way. Um, I, I, was, I was lightly tweeting mm-hmm. all of the cases where Trump was paying lip service, as Jackie says, uh, to, uh, to minorities of various types. Uh, he pointed a number of them out in, uh, in, the, in the gallery, in the audience, so to speak, and uh, I, I think he was just really trying to cover himself with, I'm not a racist, I'm not, uh, I don't think he did, I'm not a sexist. There were a lot of women, though there were a lot of women that were pointed out. Um, that kind of person as a cover for what really lurked beneath, which was a lot of the policy stuff. So I even found a couple of places where uh, he would switch almost mid-sentence between saying something nice and then saying something incredibly horrible that was contradictory to the to the thing that he said that was nice, hoping that people would somehow merge the two together. Um, is that is, the you had you had a tactic? You had referred uh, to the identity politics triangulation that uh, you you said was deliberate that Trump was doing last night. Is is that what you're referring to? Actually, I should say what what does that mean? Deliberate identity politics triangulation. Well, the deliberate part comes from the fact that it was done constantly. So if, if you see a football
football team running the same play. Sorry about the sports metaphor, folks. Uh, if you see a football <laughs> a football team running the same play 30 times in all four quarters, you suspect that that's part of the playbook. Uh, this is not an improvisation. Uh, the, the play that, that they ran was to try to reposition they, the Trump team and the Trump administration and Republicans, because Republicans have that meanness about them also. They, they try to position themselves as friend of blacks, friends of Mexicans, friend of immigrants, friend of uh, Muslims, friend of this, friend of that, immediately before talking about red meat policy that was designed to be against those people, that he, he would present the policy in a way that doesn't say, uh, the people I just praised, I'm going to kick in the shins. He just praised the people mm-hmm. and then showed the policy that would kick you, you, them in the shins if he explained it a little more. And uh, apparently that worked. Oh, yeah, the, that's what I was going to say, yeah. that this obviously works for them to to couch what they're saying in the nice-sounding words that everybody falls for because the people that they're intended for will fall for them. That's, you know, Republicans in Congress. That's, you know, specifically re- Republicans and uh, folks who consider themselves to be conservatives out in America who voted for Trump. They'll think, oh, see, he said all the right things. Therefore, we don't have to worry about racism anymore. It's over. And it works on the media because clearly today they've been over and over and over again about how presidential he looked without actually looking at the fact that everything he said was either standard Republican boilerplate or seriously scary authoritarianism. And, and I want to... Yeah, I'm glad you pointed out the media, Jackie, because that's exactly right. He's not only playing to his base, he's also playing to the media because the media is going to position him Yes, I mean, actually, this is Desi, but uh, yes. Exactly right. (laughs) Well, that was Desi. Yeah, that was Desi. But I will will glom on just a little bit with this, is that, you know, I think what's happened with the media landscape is that instead of coming out from the beginning and pointing out the absurdities of Trump, his campaign, uh, and his tactics and, and the rhetoric, they've tried to somehow normalize it by having people on who support him, who I don't think deep down most of them actually believe the stuff that they're supporting, because they know he's ridiculous. I mean, I had a, a joke about the bingo card the following morning was going to be either he didn't say that, or that's not what he meant, or that's not what was in his heart, or his followers knew what he meant. It's, it's, it's the, the rhetoric that follows up these sorts of events where people try to explain away what Trump actually said. And the media has gotten into this, uh, this habit and routine now of attempting to uh, normalize and make regular the craziness that is Trump. And so I think when you look at something like happened last night, it's more of the same in that vein of trying to say, well, he was presidential, when in fact he said very little uh, that was more than a third grade reading level off of a note card. Well, I, there was there was nothing there that felt or sounded presidential to me at all. Well, I, I and we got to get to a break here in a moment. We'll come back with some actual substance of the things that he did say. But I, I mean, this is a serious question uh, right now, and this I think even applies. Um, to other presidents, not just Donald Trump. But all of this raises the question, what's more important now, ultimately, to American presidencies? Is it substance or is it style? Because, you know, uh, Jackie, uh, your old colleagues at, at CNN on air last night, I mean, they were just doing backflips to declare the speech a triumphant moment for uh, for Trump. Uh, even though he just, you know, was reading off of a teleprompter uh, and he, you know, spent the last I don't know how many months describing CNN as fake news. But ultimately, 
that's what the viewers are hearing. That's what they're watching. And, uh, you know, it's a serious question. If if a president can come up with the style, ultimately, is that now enough in these United States? Unfortunately, it's become enough for the electorate that gave Trump the Oval Office, but it shouldn't be. I mean, Obama had style and substance. And I think that we're, I'm hoping that there will be some sort of backlash in terms of coming back around to substance again, because uh, this is embarrassing. It's embarrassing for us as a country. It's embarrassing for us internationally. Um, I, I cringe when I hear his voice. I, I, I cower when, when he, you know, I... I see him as a representation of the United States because it's not who we are. And I think anybody who, who has any sense sees a naked emperor, and, and we continue to see the naked emperor. So I hope that we get back to the point where we, we mandate, <laughs> just as a society, that whoever leads us has some substance to them, because this is... I hope this is as low as it can go. I really do. Well, one hopes, yes, that it is as low as it can go. But, you know, clearly it is a strategy that that actually works. I mean, basically the the, the number of lies that Trump uh, dispensed in that speech they're not going the media is not going to take as much time in debunking them clearly they've already spent most of the time talking about the tone instead of the substance so uh, i think we have a, a a long road to walk on that one getting substance back we will continue to walk that long road after this uh, uh quick break uh, our special coverage of the joint session uh, uh the the address to the joint session of congress by donald trump on tuesday with my guest jackie Schechner and gaius publius and of course desi Doyen. Much more of that straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. In 2016, the earth shifted beneath our feet. The rebellion started as a quiet protest spoken by families of all colors and creeds, families who just wanted a fair shot for their children and a fair hearing for their concerns. I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the sky. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com covering the uh, the address, Donald Trump's uh, address to the joint session of Congress on Tuesday uh, with my guests Jackie Schechner and Gaius Publius. Uh, the, the big moment in uh, last night's uh, presidential address, uh, it seems at least the one that so many are now talking about uh, the following day, was that long, long, really long ovation. Uh, one that Trump extended with ad-libs several times uh, for the widow of a Navy SEAL, Ryan Owens, who was killed in Yemen in a disastrous attack. The first such uh, ground attack authorized by Donald Trump. Uh, Van Jones over on CNN said in, in that moment that Trump became president. 
Uh, but uh, Gaius Publius, you brought an observation uh, from Brandon Friedman, no relation. He's a former government official uh, that, the, that the media seemed to see that moment very differently than many veterans apparently did. Uh, yes, and not just veterans, but uh, civilians in the sense that they're not pro, they're not media pros, they're not in the biz. So uh, I, I marked a couple of, uh, he did some side-by-side uh, mm-hmm. Twitter comments. Uh, first from Katie Turr, what the president did with Owen's widow was capital P presidential, single most extraordinary moment I've seen. And she's from, uh, N- and from uh, NBC, yeah, go ahead. And uh, she, uh, you, you pointed out the Van Jones comment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan Merica uh, of CNN said, Navy SEAL's widow provides emotional high point in Trump's speech. You could call that descriptive, but it's a little glorifying as well. And contrast to that with um, uh, just ordinary people. Uh, Bill Putnam photo tweets, no, Van Jones, he exploited her and her family's grief. Ma- Max Rosenthal, get the camera off this poor woman with a swear word following. And finally, uh, Chris Shannon, whose picture makes him look like a veteran, uh, with respect to using widow of Navy SEAL as a political prop, quote, he became president in that moment, you can go bleep yourself, Van. Mm. Um, I think there's a real divide in the nation about this president, and that divide is not reflected, as we've said in the last segment, in the media. And I have to say, part of the reason for that is the media has been softened up. I mean, I think they've been softened up not only by Trump uh, in the, the newsrooms in the media, but I think they've also been softened up by their own um, uh, CEO class, uh, their owner class, who ha- will have business before Donald Trump, and that business will they will very much want it to go forward. People at CNN and places like that are really being triangulated, whatever their intentions need to be and uh, we're not going to get much help from them I don't think well this was uh, you know Republicans and Democrats alike in that chamber going on and on uh, it felt very exploitative frankly to me and I think that would be true even if the mission uh, hadn't been you know which lost a Navy seal a US helicopter they killed about 20 women and children including an American born uh, uh, child even if that hadn't been approved by Trump himself it seemed Extraordinarily exploitative and uncomfortable and almost surreal to me. Uh, Jackie, I think we need to yeah. be careful. Yeah, I just want to be careful here. Um, something to, to just note. Um, you know, I don't want the tone of any of this conversation to insinuate that his widow was being used in a way that she hadn't consented to. I agree with you. Um, yes. Because, and you know, Mary Catherine Hammond put something out about this that got a lot of play on Twitter. And I will point out that Mary Catherine, unfortunately, lost her own husband recently. Mm. Um, and so I think that you can't speak to why someone would choose to participate. You know, I, I originally had the same thought, like, gosh, leave this poor woman alone. And then I, I didn't put anything out to that effect because I realized that it was not my place to uh, pass a judgment on what made her feel comfortable. And there may have been a moment in there that she needed um, to be acknowledged or to have her husband's loss acknowledged. I just... I just want to be careful not to say that she was being used and to insinuate that she was somehow victimized. What I, what I do want to point out is that in the information we have surrounding how the decision was made to, to go forth with that raid, that it does seem that President Trump, uh, and I use those ter- 
two words together uh, <laughs> uh, in a way that really bothers me. Um, <laughs> yes. But he made the decision over dinner. It was. It seems very casual. There's some insinuation that he was mm-hmm. tweeting about other things while it was happening, that he couldn't be bothered to go to the Situation Room, that it was not well planned, that the loss could have been uh, avoided had it not been carried out. I mean, there are all of these extenuating circumstances um, that we can point to as to why this seemed like a propaganda moment. But I, I just want to be careful to not insinuate that this is a weak woman that's somehow being used against her will, because there, there may be very real reasons why she chose to participate, uh, and I just don't want to diminish those. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, uh, Jackie, that we should respect her choice to be a part of the uh, to be a part of that, and I'm sure that was very important for her. But I think the point that you bring up is is where the real nub of this is: is that the media has then latched on to what was a very moving moment, clearly, but has then ignored all the circumstances, as you mentioned, that Correct. led up to Correct. that. So, so it's a it's an excellent deflection strategy, is what it has turned out right. to be. And God knows, yeah. to be clear, I'm I, you know I don't blame her i don't blame you know her for anything at all uh you know i'm I'm talking about the way that uh, trump was uh was milking that moment and that seemed very troubling to me guys yes and and i just i i I agree with with what jackie said um but i also want to look at what this is a brilliant move by the trump team to recapture the narrative around that raid i mean that the narrative around that raid was terrible prior to this and he, that he, they, the team, have have managed to completely reposition themselves and allow the media to reposition him as well, in terms of uh, how this how that story gets told. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they have, and that's what the media does. They allow. Uh, <laughs> they're easily manipulated. Speaking of easily manipulated, let's move on to uh, some of the substance here. Uh, the Affordable Care Act, of course, or Obamacare, the name that I know uh, still drives uh, Jackie Schechner crazy when I use it. I know, <clears throat> but it's a short drive for you, Jackie. Uh, anyway, uh, that got, of course, quite of a bit of, a, of attention last night um, in the wake of Republicans, frankly, having very difficult time trying to figure out how to repeal and replace a health care plan that has now uh, offered insurance and or medical coverage to some 22 million more Americans than before Obamacare was created. Whatever you think of Obamacare, uh, there are now 20, uh, you know, some 20 million Americans that now have at least access to health care that did not have it before. Here's uh, here's Trump speaking about the need to immediately or as soon as possible anyway, repeal and replace this uh, uh, disastrous Obamacare. I'm also calling on this Congress to repeal and replace Obamacare <laughs> with reforms that expand choice, increase access, lower costs, and at the same time provide better health care. <laughs> Mandating every American to buy government-approved health insurance was never the right solution for our country. <laughs> the way to make health insurance available to everyone is to lower the cost of health insurance, and that is what we are going to do. <laughs> Obamacare premiums nationwide have increased by double and triple digits. One-third of the counties have only one insurer, and they're losing them fast. They are losing them so fast. They're leaving. And many Americans have no choice at all. There's no choice left. Remember, 
when you were told that you could keep your doctor and keep your plan. We now know that all of those promises have been totally broken. Obamacare is collapsing, and we must act decisively to protect all Americans. Okay, Jackie Schechner, I suspect uh, we couldn't have uh, uh, teed up a softer ball for you here as a, uh, <laughs> many years as a uh, health care reformer during the Obama era. But uh, th- there's your uh, smorgasbord. Take your pick uh, from, from yeah, those well, comments. Yeah, well, good luck with that, right? <laughs> you want less expensive coverage. Right. You want no mandate. You want more access. Uh, and I, I mean, it's it's not doable. <laughs> I mean, I would like a million dollars to fall from the sky. It's not going to happen. Um, the reason why the mandate is in place is because if you want insurers to be required to cover everybody, which means no more pre-existing condition exclusions, you got to get everybody in the pool. The insurance industry is about making the most money possible for its shareholders, their businesses, and that's what they're required by law to do. They're not required to make sure you get healthy. They're not required to make sure that you have good access to good care. They're required to make as much money as possible for the people that are on their board. So when you talk about having a mandate, that's what the insurance industry agreed to uh, in order to drop the pre-existing conditions thing. If you want that to continue, you got to convince the insurance industry uh, that they're going to continue to make money, and there's no way to do that without requiring that everybody get in the pool, that everybody's covered, because you need to be able to cover healthy people and sick people all together, or it doesn't mitigate their risk. Trump. And then at the same... Oh, God. No, 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 go ahead. ahead. No, and then at the same time, you talk about, like, more access, lower prices. I I don't know how you plan to do that, because the insurance companies are going to charge what they want to charge. They have monopolies. They're not competing for your business. They're competing to see what the market will bear, because unfortunately in this country, you need to have access to health insurance in order to get access to health care. And they know that. They're the gatekeepers. So they're not going to lower their prices to make a better deal for you. They're going to raise their prices together in, in collaboration to see how much money they can possibly make. So, you know, Trump talks about being this great deal maker. Let him sit down with the insurance industry, who funds much of Congress, by the way, and figure out how to get everybody covered. Uh, and with lower prices, uh, with great care, and not require everybody to buy some product. Let me see how good you've gotten at this, uh, Jackie. I've got he uh, Trump came up with uh, five uh, points concerning uh, whatever re- reform plan, replace and reform plan they they imagine they're going to come up with. Uh, Let me get your very quick response to each of them. Uh, He talked about uh, those with pre-existing conditions must still have access to health care and a stable transition from the exchanges. Well, access is not necessarily something I can afford. I mean, I can have access, as Bernie Sanders would say, I have access to a mansion. It doesn't mean I can afford it. So right. Access is not the same thing as affordability. Good quick answer. Uh, health care, health savings accounts. What's that about? They're talking about that oh, a lot. Oh, these are my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> you got a little extra money that you can put aside into a tax shelter uh, just in case you get sick. I mean, that's what that is, assuming that everybody's got money that they can put aside for the rainy day when they may get sick and need it, and assuming you have enough to cover whatever that illness or ailment happens to be, and they're attached to high-deductible plans. All right, give... So it's essentially saying, here's a little extra money, uh, you have a high-deductible, all that payment for health care is going to come out of your pocket, it's just going to sit in like a tax-free account for a while. Give governors resources they need to make sure no one is left out. What the hell is he talking about there? My guess is they're trying to do something with Medicaid, 
Um, but we've proven over the years that block grants don't work, that it's not enough money to cover people who need Medicaid in certain states. I think it's their, their language to try to figure out what to do about Medicaid and Medicaid expansion. Uh, but basically, there's not enough money to go around. So nothing like that's actually going to work. Let me toss this one to Gaius. Uh, number four here was the uh, unnecessary costs and high prices of drugs. I think he pointed to Bernie Sanders on that as he uh, as he mentioned that. Uh, but uh, how will they possibly lower costs, uh, Gaius? Well, they first have to want to. Uh, but the way you lower costs in the drug industry is, is, is pretty obvious. Uh, you can do what they do in Europe and, and institute price controls, which is what European single-payer-type policies tend to do in various flavors in various countries. Uh, there's, there's, a, there, there's upper limits to, to, to prices that uh, providers can charge. Uh, in the United States, if you want to do it in a competitive situation, let the government be the largest negotiator of drug prices for all government, uh, federal government purchases, and let them negotiate the price the way you, uh, if, if you're the volume buyer of cars uh, in your town, um, you've got 90% of the market. You can negotiate the best price available from the people who are going to sell to you. But, so let's negotiate those prices. The third way, by the way, is drug importation from Canada, which creates natural competition. But haven't uh, Republicans in Congress and Democrats in Congress uh, uh, over and over again, pretty much other than Bernie Sanders, actually, uh, let me say other than Bernie Sanders and and Donald Trump, uh, haven't those Republicans and those Democrats just resisted time and time again the idea that uh, the government should be negotiating uh, the the price of drugs and allowing uh, import and so forth? Uh, <laughs> what, what said that again? What'd you say, Jack? I said, "Have you met, have you met pharma? I mean, we have a pharmaceutical right. lobby that's incredibly powerful. There's absolutely no way they're going to be able to to get any of that done unless they get pharma on board, and they're not going to." Uh, exactly. And finally, uh, the, f- the fifth point here was purchase health insurance across state lines. Uh, allow that to be done. Uh, Jackie, I think I've asked you probably every time you've been on this show, but I guess it bears repeating. What's wrong with that plan? Hey, just let people purchase their insurance from a different state. Well, there's a couple of reasons behind it. One is that consumer protections in this country are state-based. So if you get rid of state lines, all of the insurance companies are going to set up set up in the states with the uh, laxist regis- uh, excuse me regulations, mm-hmm. like your credit card company set up in Delaware. So you're going to end up having cut consumer protections. Because if you look at the way our insurance market works, networks are regional. Uh, so if you end up buying a policy, let's say it's a cheaper policy in Nevada, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that any of your doctors in California would be covered. Uh, and then you end up having really high out-of-network costs. Uh, and also cost of living is different, right? So you can buy a cheap plan in Iowa that's gonna, not going to cover anything in a city that has a higher cost of living or a state, rather, that has a higher cost of living. So there's a lot that would have to be done in order for that to be beneficial. But just all of a sudden letting that happen is not the competitive advantage that people assume it's going to be. Uh, let, let's uh, jump. Uh, we've got to move ahead here. There's so much to cover. Uh, Trump talked about regulations. He talked about coal jobs. He talked about pipelines. Uh, Gaius and and maybe Desi Doyen, um, I'll set up uh, some uh, softballs for you guys here uh, with with this comment uh, when Trump talked about, uh, you know, somehow restoring coal jobs. He didn't tell us how that was going to happen and clearing the way for uh, the completion of uh, the Dakota Access and Keystone uh, XL oil pipelines. We're imposing a new rule which mandates that for every one new regulation, two old regulations must be eliminated. 
We're going to stop the regulations that threaten the future and livelihood of our great coal miners. We have cleared the way for the construction of the Keystone and Dakota Access Pipelines, thereby creating tens of thousands of jobs. And I've issued a new directive that new American pipelines be made with American steel. Okay, Gaius Publius, uh, take your pick. <laughs> There's a smorgasbord for you. Uh, where do you even start with that? Um, well, the lack of reg- wanting to remove regulations is both a a Republican wet dream, and to some extent, uh, if you look at the New Dems and the Third Way Democrats, a, a Democratic wet dream as well. But also, with respect to Trump, I think that's a, a land developer's wet dream. Uh, this is a place where he does have actual policy preferences. So there's a there's a huge intersection there. Wanting to get rid of regulations basically says. Uh, allow the largest predators in the forest to eat as much food as they want and take away any possibility of the of the prey to protect themselves. So he's going to do that uh, all sorts of ways. As far as coal, you mentioned coal. Mm-hmm. Uh, those coal jobs aren't coming back. And the reason they're not coming back is because coal, like a lot of industries, is being very highly mechanized. So he can actually probably... I don't know if he can. I'm picking a number out of, out of my hat here. Um, triple the number of jobs, uh, triple the, the, the amount of sales, mm-hmm. coal sales in the world. I think there's a lot of overseas market for coal if you can get it to a port, which is a problem for a lot of localities. But let's say you could, you could sell as much coal as you could dig, including on federal lands. You probably don't triple the, uh, the workforce doing that. You might add a tenth or so of the workforce, again, guessing at the numbers. That's a very highly mechanized industry. Those jobs are not coming back. How long can, uh, they, how long can Republicans continue to say that we're going to bring the coal jobs back before uh, f- you know, people in coal country realize they are lying and abandon them? I mean, they can only blame Obama's war on coal, which didn't really happen, but they can only blame Obama's war on coal and the EPA for so long. Are they going to figure that out, guys? Yes, they are at some point, and I want to step back because this is a, one instance of, of really one of the major arcs of this presidency, which is he has made an awful lot of populist promises that he cannot possibly keep, and at some point that's going to catch up with him. I don't know when and I don't know how. I think Jeff Beauregard Sessions is going to help with that, with his, with his busting heads on the pipeline protesters, for example. He's going to help with that when it comes to, um, for all of his Black History Month uh, rhetoric. As soon as the um, Black Lives Matter protests start up again, and as soon as these newly enabled militarized cops that uh, Trump loves to stand in front of, the beefy millions of, of people who police our neighborhoods, those people um, are going to feel newly empowered to crack heads and newly, newly bulletproof, newly invulnerable, bulletproof metaphorically, but newly invulnerable to prosecution and blame. Uh, I think that we're headed for a, a real kind of rolling civil war in this country, and I think that he's trying to keep this at bay as long as he possibly can, as are the Republicans. But at some point, especially if we get eight years of Republicans, this ship is going to hit the side of the harbor and break. Mm. And I don't know where it's going to happen, but all of these issues are instances of the ways that could happen. 
Well, I, I certainly hope you're right that eventually those. Well, I hope support. he's wrong that I mean, it's not sorry, a rolling yes. civil not war. Not the rolling but, civil yeah. war part. Sorry, the part about where eventually it seems that those who support yeah. him and who got him elected will eventually catch on to the fact that all of the stuff he says he cannot follow through on. But but my fear is that they actually won't because fantasy sells very well among the American public and especially in coal country because. I, I think that they know and they have access to the information that shows that coal is not going to come back, especially when it comes to its competition with natural gas, which has overtaken uh, most of the market. And I, I just don't see that that's necessarily going to happen as soon as we would need it to, especially since they're cheering the removal and repeal of all of these clean water regulations that were actually supposed to keep protecting the water in coal country. I mean, those people's water, they just voted for somebody to pollute their water again. So, yeah. so I, don't, I just that's that's why I, you know, I, I see that tension and I wonder if there is a way for it to play out. Well, I would do a yes, but to that, uh, Desi, that uh, yes, the, at the change election in 2008, which which is after the crash that we never recovered from is the change election of 2016. None of that need for change in the country is going to go away. Now, will the country be, in essence, destroyed by this, by this manic wrecking crew that's in government now, prior to people rising up? Um, that's a race. I don't know who's going to win that race. Will the rise up be something anybody wants to live through? Nobody wants to live in a country with a civil war. So, Brad, I would agree with you completely there. We shouldn't have to do this to get the country that we need to be peaceful and happy in. But it looks like that may be headed that way. Let's uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll uh, talk about the uh, disastrous next election coming up, because I want to get uh, all three of your thoughts on the, uh, on the direction of the Democratic Party and the Democratic response to that speech last night. Uh, and, uh, and maybe if we have time, the election over the weekend of the uh, new DNC chair. Uh, take a quick break, and we'll be back with more of our special coverage of whatever the hell happened in Congress last night uh, with Donald Trump's first address to a joint session with our guests Jackie Schechner, Gaius Publius, Desi Doyen, and myself, Brad Friedman. You're listening to the Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. That's bradblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Dying industries will come roaring back to life. Heroic veterans will get the care they so desperately need. Our military will be given the resources. Crumbling infrastructure will be replaced. And our neglected inner cities will see a rebirth of hope, safety, and opportunity. In fact, our children will grow up in a nation of miracles. Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, God took a Daniel once again. Welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We've got just a few minutes 
uh, with our uh, coverage of uh, Donald Trump's address to a joint session of Congress that was not a State of the Union for some reason or another, but sure as hell looked and smelled like one. Uh, speaking of smells, no, that's not uh, the right uh, that right way to put this. <laughs> um, uh, Steve Bashir, the former governor, Kentucky uh, governor, actually speaking of coal country, uh, the former Kentucky governor, Steve Bashir gave the Democratic response uh, to uh, Trump's address. I don't have time to uh, to play much of substance, but it started this way. I'm a proud Democrat, but first and foremost, I'm a proud Republican and Democrat and mostly American. What? And like many of you, I am worried about the future of this nation. Okay, I don't know exactly what he meant there, uh, but I actually thought that Bashir gave uh, one of the most effective responses that I recall seeing, but there have been a lot of uh, uh, folks criticizing Democrats uh, for not using a rising star like uh, California Senator uh, Kamala Harris or or even a Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, since he's the expected to be the face of Democratic opposition. Let me very quickly uh, go around the table here and get the thoughts from Jackie Schechner and Gaius Publius. Um, I thought he did well, but uh, a lot of people were critical. Jackie, what do you think? You know, I don't, I don't think that sort of thing matters that much. Mm-hmm. I think what's going to matter here on out is what the Democratic Party does to fight back against the Trump agenda. I mean, I really, at this point, the Democrats need to put on a little bit of their Republican fighting spirit, and maybe that's what he meant. <laughs> but they need to put it on, and they need to band together, and they need to fight for the things that they believe in. And, you know, we tend to be a, a soft, big tent, everybody come on in party. I think now's the time to really stand up for what we believe in uh, and for working-class Americans and for environmental regulation and health care and all of those good things. And that means getting tough. Gaius, is that what he, uh, they were trying to do, put up a uh, sort of a conservative Democrat to reach out to Trump, uh, you know, to Trump voters? Uh, or, or were they ducking by, oh, just get the old retired guy, throw him up there while Democrats figure out what the hell to do? I see this through the lens uh, of the, the same lens that I saw the DNC chair fight um, uh, that just recently concluded. That is, this is the two wings of the Democratic Party, the Sanders wing slash Warren wing slash et cetera, Merkley wing, versus the, uh, the centrist wing, the old guard, trying to jockey each other for power. Who's going to be the face of the resistance? Who's going to benefit from being the resistance to Trump? And in this instance, it, uh, as I see it, the, um, the centrist wing won. Why wasn't, it, why wasn't Warren the spokesperson? Why wasn't Sanders the yeah. spokesperson? I agree. Yeah, good question. Again, nothing against what Bashir did. He did fine. But uh, yeah, where's the where's the real resistance going to come from? Uh, Since you uh, brought it up there, Gaius, uh, very quickly, uh, your thoughts on the weekend election. We haven't talked about it. I haven't gotten to talk about it on this show. Uh, The the DNC chair, former uh, labor secretary, former head of the DOJ civil rights unit, um, uh, uh, Tom Perez. Uh, he was endorsed by uh, Obama. He edged out the Bernie Sanders endorsed Keith Ellison. Is that another sign that the uh, centrists are winning in the Democratic Party? Uh, yes. Uh, to put it very briefly, three points. One, it's it, even though the candidates might have been more or less identical on many issues, it mattered very, very much to the Obama slash Clinton wing of the party to to defeat these people that Obama himself whipped for Perez. The optics for low-information Sanders voters, people who get their news from, from headlines and go on with their lives, uh, the optics is just terrible. So Dem Exit took a bit of a jump 
uh, as a result of this. And finally, on the substance, there are real money issues here. Uh, do you want consultants sitting on the DNC committee? Do you want um, uh, lobbyists sitting on the DNC? Or do you want to go back to the Obama era where you don't take money from lobbyists and consultants? Uh, they're they're clearly establishing themselves as we're, we're as far as money goes we're handling we're doing business the same way we did under Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Jackie Schechner did uh, did uh, Democrats make a mistake by choosing Tom Perez as you see it? I think they make a mistake every time that they reinforce the status quo. I just think our country is heading in a different direction, and I think you need to fight fire with fire. And I think people are are over the establishment. I think that we need to embrace the movement that's happening. And I think it needs to be fierce on the left the same way it's forceful on the right. Well stated. Des, you got a final thought? Uh, yeah, just the um, I, I think that Trump and the Republicans, Trump especially, has stolen the economic populism argument from Democrats, the centrist corporatist Democrats while they slept. And that's where they need to focus. And I don't know that they know that yet. You'd think this would have woken them up by now, but uh, apparently not. So this is going to take a while. Uh, I got to get out here. We're running late. Uh, thank you, uh, both of you guys, uh, very, very much. Jackie Schechner uh, can find your work at JackieSchechner.com and follow her and uh, share her and harass her on the Twitters at Jackie <laughs> at Jackie Schechner. You'll figure out how to spell it, especially if you can spell Gaius Publius. You can find him at GaiusPublius.tumblr. Tumblr.com. He also tweets as Gaius underscore Publius. Uh, hey, thanks to both of you guys. A pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Greatly appreciated. Also, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can also drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. You can find, follow, share, and harass me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to uh, make sure we can continue doing what we uh, struggle to do every day here on your public airwaves. That is greatly appreciated as well. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.